the future of work is that you'll just do what you love and what you're creative at, and there'll be no frictions in a, in a Bitcoin world. It's like gig economy that we see today on steroids. That's part of the vision for a future Bitcoin economy put forward by Jack Liu, Managing Director Asia for the crypto finance company Circle. And if you don't like the sound of a gig economy on steroids, don't worry. It'll be a world in which we'll all be released from drudgery and allowed to be more creative. He'll explain exactly how it'll work and much else in the next 20 minutes. I'm Charles Miller, and I began my conversation with Jack by asking how he found his way into crypto from the conventional finance industry. I graduated from Queen's University in Canada in 2010, and uh, my first job out of school was uh, as an equity derivative salesperson at Barclays Capital in Hong Kong. Well, it was fascinating at first because, you know, as a young graduate to have sort of wear a suit every day and work in finance, this is very, very, very cool. And the money was pretty good, too. Uh, but you started to notice that um, while the rest of my life was really being changed by technology, the job function of, you know, at the time, praised as sort of high-flying financial career, uh, it looked very similar to even the, the way Wall Street was described by... Uh, Michael Lewis and Liar's Poker in the 80s or the 70s. And so something was off about that. And so I decided to quit my job at Barclays and move to Silicon Valley uh, and see what was going on in, in the fintech world. And by chance, I discovered Bitcoin then. So the, the world of finance was sort of ripe to be disrupted, really. That's right. Um, all the mentors I had uh, who were great to me uh, in, in the financial world, they had come through a lot of like cyclical cycles in finance. So bull markets, bear markets. And as you remember, after the 08 crisis, uh, we, the financial industry went through a lot of uh, lean years in uh, 09, 2010, 2011. Um, but I, I had a feeling that structurally something was off in, in finance that you're never going to see the, the bull markets that... You know, my colleagues or my mentors have seen in the 06, 05, 07 years. Um, and while it's cool to be young and in finance, I didn't want to be old and in, in, in an old financial world. So uh, that's what prompted me to, to explore. So you took a big risk and took yourself off to Silicon Valley. And what did you find there? I found that uh, entrepreneurs there were already working on things like robotics, self-driving cars, um, longevity. Uh, and so you just realize, okay, there's, there are levels to this. And um, uh, while it's nice to be an entrepreneur yourself, I need to sort of learn uh, from the great minds of the time in Silicon Valley. And, and one of the topics that came up was, was Bitcoin. And that was uh, like a love at first sight moment for me. Uh, what was the moment? How did it, how did it play out? I think I came across an article which talked about Bitcoin uh, having ascended sort of a $120. This is, I think, August 2013. And uh, I, I linked to the white paper. I took a, a full read of it. The Satoshi. The Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. That's right. And, uh, you know, I'm not... My dad's a PhD <laughs> chemist, but I, I don't really read that kind of material. But this one I found fascinating. And I think within the next... 48 hours, I went running out to an ATM to buy myself my first Bitcoin. So actually, you went to Silicon Valley with a sort of broad ambition to just get involved in the technology business, but then you sort of gravitated back to the world of money. Yeah, that's right. And, and so what happened after you had this epiphany of, of discovering Bitcoin? Well, I kind of thought, uh, well, I'm a newcomer to Silicon Valley. I'm a newcomer to technology. Uh, and you remember back in the time, companies were not even very well funded. 
So I come from a business background, and Bitcoin was still in a very kind of infant technology. It was just starting to uh, have companies get funded. And therefore, a lot of the companies, the makeup was almost all engineers, as it should be for that, for that stage. And uh, no one really, relatively with a Wall Street background had really been accepted or even welcomed into the space necessarily. So I thought I was uh, in a really uphill challenge to uh, even secure uh, any kind of job uh, related to Bitcoin. But I was determined to do it. Um, and so I started a blog at the time, just sharing my thoughts on Bitcoin as a passion. And it was read and and then I was managed to get myself uh, my first job in Bitcoin. So I, I suppose your contribution to the discussion was in relation to economics and the finance rather than the technology, was it? That's right. And I think there were a couple of people that were you know, very good at this as well. I think Eric Voorhees had written about money and state, uh, Tour de Meester and others, uh, and Roger Ver, of course. So there's a few of us that came from a, a financial side of the uh, economics equation. And so what sort of direction did you think you could suggest for the emerging sector? Yeah, so what was really interesting for me is um, I had you know, worked in Hong Kong uh, and also I was in Silicon Valley, and it was clear to me that because Bitcoin is global, um, this was not going to be one of those where, you, know, you imagine like, a, like a Uber stays in the United States for several, several years, develops a, a high user base, and then has a lot of capital to go expand in Asia. And vice versa, you know, in recent years we hear about Alibaba expanding to the United States, but they're a company that's 20 years old. But in Bitcoin, the challenge at the time was entrepreneurs uh, had to go global right away. And uh, with my kind of dual experiences on both sides of the Pacific, uh, I was able to kind of see a, a place where I could kind of triangulate my experiences on Wall Street, my experiences in, in Asia, in the U.S., and kind of help companies expand. So what was the nature of that first job that you had? Yeah, my first job was uh, as director of strategy at Kraken. Uh, and it's one of the earlier exchanges. It still exists today and doing very well. It was in Silicon Valley. And at the time, uh, it was about sort of with limited resources, what, what should we be building at the time? How many people were working at Kraken at that time? I, I believe it was like 30 to 40, and the company only raised like a $5 million seed round. So it was a really exciting time at, at the company. I, I suppose in a way, an exchange out of all the moving parts of the crypto business is one of the easiest to understand because it has a sort of analogy, analogous form in the conventional world, doesn't it, which is a, a currency exchange or something. That's right. Um, so did that make it a sort of a business model that was quite easy to envisage and, and, and get going. Yeah, um, I think that was the kind of uh, crux or the problem uh, at the time was a lot of people were fascinated by Bitcoin. A lot of people were fascinated by uh, the word blockchain kind of emerged in 2015. But um, how do you make money um, in, the, in the sector? That, that's important, of course. And so uh, there was really only two use cases. It was mining and it was exchange. There was the mining, which basically generated the cryptocurrency, and there was the exchange, where you had a transaction fee for converting fiat to crypto or vice versa, right? That's right. And uh, trace back to that time, um, sort of in 2014, total market cap of all cryptocurrencies was something like 5 billion US dollars. The market cap of Apple is, at the time, 300 billion obviously more and more people have been drawn into the world of crypto but 
How much easier is it to get people to understand what it's all about these days? Yeah, certainly the media coverage of the last few years have exp- exponentially like increased. So there's a lot more voices and experts that have come in and people with real professional experiences to come in and kind of educate the user base. I think in terms of internally at exchanges, um, most of these exchanges were kind of set up as internet platforms or with internet entrepreneurs and engineers. So, uh, and then they were uh, kind of uh, build out compliance and legal teams to uh, comply uh, with regulations. So it's a little contrasting to uh, today's traditional exchanges, which are full of maybe more financial professionals and, and, and such. Um, what's been really interesting uh, is that crypto entrepreneurship uh, has a unique kind of bent. And one day there will be books written about how to manage companies in, in, that are crypto because uh, anyone can set up an exchange, anyone can pursue uh, a different kind of customer acquisition model. So exchanges, while they are financial companies, operate... I think in many ways, even beyond uh, internet startups uh, in, in their sophistication of how they acquire users and ma- manage the operations. You've got experience of the, the North America and uh, China and uh, Hong Kong and, and Beijing. Do you feel that now we really do live in a sort of global culture where you can go without missing a beat from, from one, one culture to another in terms of this, the world that you live in? That's right. Um, you know, today we're we're talking uh, here in London, and uh, I look at my back at my calendar. I think I went uh, twenty five cities across three continents, maybe twice uh, in the past fifty three days or so. Uh, and so you almost have to. <laughs> that seems crazy, but you kind of get better, and you appreciate the fact that okay, well, in every single city, they're going to have Wi Fi. You're going to be able to use your WhatsApp or your Facebook in, in every single... And the people you meet are sort of all of, this, of a kind as well? Yeah, and oftentimes you meet similar... Especially in this industry, you tend to meet a lot of same people in different cities. And you, for, you forget that the two of you are meeting today in Europe, but last week you were meeting in Asia. So the, the cities itself becomes like the background um, sort of environment. But your, your core life, you can now maintain a kind of a consistent life wherever you are. And I think that's the emerging trend we're going to see. Do you think that the people in this space are almost now reaching a point where they are no longer sort of on the fringes of industry and business, but moving into an, sort of almost an establishment position? I would definitely not call it establishment. And I think the market correction is taking uh, people off that position. Uh, but I do think it is now cool. It is a cool industry. And uh, even fintech that's not Bitcoin or not blockchain is not cool anymore. Because Why? Because it's sort of last year's thing? Or? Yeah, because people can see, regardless of how raw it is, our industry still, in many ways, they can see that this must be the future. I think that is a general acceptance. Even people that you know, don't, haven't yet bought cryptocurrencies, the conversations have shifted towards this is an outright scam, fraud, to... I'm not ready to use it today. I don't see anything that applies to my life today. But I've understood in some ways uh, that there's a future for this. And so if there's someone that's bringing some knowledge to conversation, um, it's seen as sort of a, a cool, cool thing to do. I think you now see the world of money as just being almost a tiny part of the future of the potential of blockchain. That's right. Money is just a representation of value. Now, once you have money that can move instantly across borders, we're thinking way too limited 
in ter- or, and also money that can move instantly and in microtransactions, that can underpin an entirely different economic structure for all of humanity once we migrate our economy over to the blockchain. It's not a simple matter of uh, a remittance for someone from Canada to Philippines being reduced in time or price from uh, a $5 fee to a one-cent fee. Or thinking about you know, whether someone living in a high-inflation country can benefit from a more stable uh, source, a state store value. I think those are nice use cases, but people haven't imagined that this technology will not just help disadvantaged people. Not it, The reason it can help do that is because it has a fundamental ability to improve the quality of living for every single person on the planet. And it'll do that for even people who don't even know what Bitcoin is and will never own a Bitcoin. How can it do that? It does that because it changes the social and economic structure of, of our society. So you imagine today, uh, I'll take a, a staff uh, who's working at a fast food restaurant, right? Um, and in this example, you know, today they don't own Bitcoin. And even 20 years from now, they haven't profited from the growth of, in the price of Bitcoin. Today in, in our economy, every one of us, I think, including that fast food worker or any, uh, any other worker, um, has brilliant ideas in their mind. And today we, we're kind of herald the brave entrepreneur who takes a huge risk, quits their job. The reason we celebrate that is because the risks to doing and following your ideas is very, very high. You have to give a 30-day notice to your employer. You don't know where your health insurance is coming from. You don't know how to get your startup capital. Um, And it takes a year or two to deploy because you have to always build your company from the ground up. Um, And it's hard to find co-founders who will join you for this journey. But you imagine a world that's run on uh, Bitcoin. What that is going to do is it's going to make people understand that there's 7 billion live machines and minds in every, uh, on this planet. And imagine if you could have a frictionless experience where you're getting paid every single minute. Okay, so your contributions, you, you think about commissions and bonuses, you're getting that every single minute. For doing what? For whatever job you're doing. So if I flip five burgers, I get five burgers worth of uh, pay. Therefore, uh, I might be a tourist uh, at, a, at, a, at a burger shop, and because people know that back in my hometown, I'm good at flipping burgers, I might just be able to step in tomorrow and, and, and work. Right? So then work becomes a hobby. It becomes what you want to do, because anything you do you're going to be able to get the appropriate value for that uh, contribution. So when people say work, it means someone's paying them a salary and they don't like it and they don't feel compensated well enough so they feel begrudgingly have to go work nine to five. The future of work is that you'll just do what you love and what you're creative at and there'll be no frictions in a, in a Bitcoin world. And so back to that example, uh, it doesn't really matter if I work at a fast food restaurant because on the weekend I might earn even more money doing whatever it is. It's like gig economy that we see today on, com- on steroids, globalized. And in that world, I don't think people are going to compare wealth. It's not going to be like, okay, you have more Bitcoins than me. That's not going to be the criteria people talk about. People are going to associate themselves with uh, really a, a really creative class. It's almost like a, a rebirth of a digital renaissance. That's what I think will happen. We live in an, an age where we're told that more and more jobs are going to become unnecessary because 
AI or robots going to take over or something, but it's rather encouraging that you are looking towards a world in which individuals' creativity, what makes a person a person, is actually going to be the way that they can make a living. Absolutely, and they're going to make a better living than they do today. It's not just a switch based on necessity. It's going to be a better life. Because think about it. What are what are a majority of the 7 billion people on our planet that we share this earth with doing? They're not doing creative things. They're doing repeat things. So like if I'm an accountant, I'm doing an audit every quarter or every tax season. That's something that I might end up doing every single year for 30 years. That is not creating new economic value. That's just a repeat kind of a, a kind of how we run our society today to keep it functioning. The blockchain is able to replace a lot of that. Think about the hundreds of millions of people and what they want to devote their life on. Today, because we don't have that future, you have kids arguing with their parents, like, but mom, uh, dad, I'm passionate about this. I want to do this. And you have your mom and dad say, but no, 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 no. I know you want to do that, but you got to you know, become a lawyer. You got to become an accountant because that's how you can make a living in this society. Once that changes, it's going to be just, uh, it'll change life to, I think, uh, this sounds crazy, but uh, I don't know what, what people's religions might be, but it'll have the kind of effect of making earth seem like heaven and making the earth that we've been living in will be looked at by historians in the future seem like hell. Wow. I mean, it, it is fantastic that in a world where it seems like even those jobs like you described, like accountants and lawyers are in, you know, everyone's talking about them being replaced by machines, that technology may just, in the nick of time, come to our rescue to find something useful for human beings to do. Yeah, I, I, I'm not concerned about the, the loss of jobs. We haven't seen the deployment of this kind of almost like utopian kind of blockchain structure. So previously when jobs were lost, they might have gone some, to someone else, uh, without seeing any benefit uh, th from the technology uh, or the money will accrue to a certain individual or certain companies. And so uh, you have a... Uh, this gets complicated, but you, you have essentially more and more inequality in our today's kind of fiat system because you have an increasing money supply. In Bitcoin, uh, you're going to reverse a lot of those metrics. So... If you lose your job tomorrow, that's going to be okay because your productivity that was captured over the previous 10 years will more, more because you're earning in a deflationary currency, that's going to be more number of Bitcoins than people can make in the following 40, 50 years. You mean what you earned will be worth more and more? That, that's right. See, today people save in an inflationary currency by default. And then they have to put that savings into either real estate or bonds or commodities or stocks and kind of almost enter into a financial kind of game. Uh, but in the future, if you imagine everyone's getting paid uh, in a, a hard currency, then you properly get compensated for the amount you're getting disrupted because the value of your savings goes up. And that depends on nobody or no government even being big enough 
to take a sort of strategic view, but the system just rebalances itself. Yeah, that's right. And if it if it's not able to do that, then uh, it, it'll have failed. But th- this is the promise of blockchain. I've never thought of it as uh, is it anti-government or is it pro-government. Uh, th- I think it, it just allows us to imagine a much more efficiently run economy. And in that economy, if we still rely on governments to build roads or not, uh, that's that's governments will have to compete to deliver the best service. And at the end of the day, if a government's building great roads, then maybe we celebrate the, the mayor, right? It's like, maybe we won't have this current impression we have of, of governments, of, of banks. So it's not the institutions that are the problem. It's we need a better technology, and that's what Bitcoin is. So you have absolutely no doubts that you are part of a business that is just going to go forward, whatever. Is that right? Is that, are you that confident? <clears throat> I'm that confident in our industry, yes. Um, I think businesses will come and grow, go. Um, it, it's funny because, you know, before Bitcoin, there was nothing really that lasts forever. And we will celebrate things like, you know, when I got into Barclays, it's a 300-year bank, right? And we want longevity of companies. Uh, with Bitcoin, you might actually see a total reverse where you have longevity of the blockchain lasting hundreds of thousands of years. And maybe it's not, no longer uh, that important whether how long companies last. So companies just exist as sort of a capture the market demand today uh, in some way, whether that's today being exchanged, being a wallet, whatever else comes. Uh, but it's not necessary for the health of ultimately uh, Bitcoin or the blockchain to carry around the same companies with it over time. So it's fascinating to work in because you always have to be on top of innovation. It's almost not possible to become an incumbent in this space because there's no kind of barrier to protect you, uh, and that's great for users. That makes the job fun five years ago, makes the job fun today, and I think that's what keeps me uh, interested in even five years from now. In 50 years' time, I can almost imagine a historian saying, at the beginning of the 21st century, People were absolutely crazy about everything to do with the computers and internet. And, you know, this blockchain thing was just the ultimate example of that. You get guys sitting there saying, in the 10,000 years, what I do on the blockchain is going to be visible. And it was just the sort of peak of confidence in technology. And it's incredible how they could have had that much faith in it. Is that possible that we'd look back like that? That's possible, but I think... That's only possible if we fail. Like, how crazy were people to believe in that? Um, from what I read about history, when something gets mass adoption, the future generations look back and says, how did you not see it? This seems very obvious. Um, oftentimes, uh, as a millennial, when I hear people talk about you know, Bitcoin t- uh, or Internet in the 21st century, I think it's useful to remember that today is only 2018. We're only 18 years into the 21st century. There's a lot more history of the 21st century to write about. So uh, Bitcoin will last uh, in this century, if it's still alive, uh, 92 years or 91. And uh, it started in 08 and 09. Um, and so what's funny about uh, my friends, in, in back to the conversation about colleagues in finance, they were, you know, I remember even in 2011, 2012, focused on the European debt crisis, and then the, the 2014 municipal bond crisis, and then the Chinese uh, stock bubble. And, and crypto seemed like a very tiny event during those years. But I think if you truly look back, uh, 
100 years from now at what happened the past 10 years, the students of tomorrow will basically define the way ca uh, capitalism worked as sort of from the Medici family with double entry accounting, that through the financial crisis of 08, and then it'll just be the Bitcoin uh, Satoshi Nakamoto white paper in 08. And they're not going to talk about all the events of 11, 13, and 15 in the traditional world. They're going to go straight into the history of the blockchain from 08. And that is like, jarring to think, because like, history is written by the victors. And they're going to focus a lot on what's happened since 2008 in the Bitcoin ecosystem. That's terrific. Well, good luck with making history for the next many decades. Jack Liu, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, pleasure. Thank you very much. My thanks to Jack Liu of Circle. Next week, we'll be hearing about the growing crypto payments business with Hans Henrik Hofmeier of the Copenhagen-based payments gateway Coinify, who have just added Bitcoin SV to the currencies they support. Thanks for listening and goodbye.